1: As I'm sure
0: you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. (music) Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ali Cawthorn. In the June issue of BBC History Magazine, we ran a poll asking you to vote for your favourite historical mysteries. And all this week on the podcast, we've been speaking to historians about the top five mysteries that won your votes. Today, we're on to number two, Stonehenge. Our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning, caught up with the archaeologist Mike Pitts to learn more about why there's still so much speculation around who built the monument, how it was built, and what it was for. Please note that this interview was recorded prior to the recent news story about the origins of Stonehenge's sarsen stones. We'll be exploring that in more detail soon on historyextra.com.
2: So you nominated Stonehenge as one of history's greatest mysteries for a recent poll we conducted in BBC History magazine. Um, the results are now in and Stonehenge came in at second place. Are you surprised by this result?
3: No, not at all. Um, I, I don't know why. I mean, I'm interested in Stonehenge. Not all my friends are, but there are certainly a lot of people around the world who are absolutely fascinated by it. Um, and it is a an extraordinary thing. I think it's a combination of complete mystery and something that looks pretty solid and obvious, um, but plonked down in the middle of central southern England uh, on what was an open plain with nobody living anywhere near and no roads or tracks or anything at all, um, looking quite mysterious, but yet close to where many people live, Southampton, Bristol, Bath, London and so on. So it's always been on people's as a as a great mystery.
2: Yeah, that makes complete sense. And also the fact that there are so many questions to be asked about Stonehenge. Um, One of the main being, why was it built? Um, Every year we get new theories published, you know, ranging from human sacrifice to astronomy. Can we say why it was built? What do we actually know?
3: I think the the way to approach it is really to think, first of all, that it's not a single monolithic structure, but it's something that grew and changed and developed over many generations. So we're not looking for a single meaning, for a single explanation, um, simply because of its long history. So it would be like trying to explain um, why Salisbury Cathedral is there. Um, And it has a very different meaning for us today. I mean, at the moment, it's um, just opening a new art exhibition that's going to be there through the the rest of the summer and the winter. And that's something that would have been completely alien at the times the cathedral was built. Salisbury Cathedral, of course, is nothing like it's always Stonehenge, but the history of Stonehenge when it was built lasted really as long as Salisbury Cathedral has for us, in a sense, because the site we know was um, special and active and there were things going on there um, by at least... 3000 BC probably two or three centuries before that if not more Um, and people were moving stones around um, centuries later and digging holes around the stones and then carving the stones breaking them up generations after that happened and the one thing I think we have to face is that there's not going to be a simple explanation it's not going to be a practical explanation you know it's got to be a combination of religion, um, of politics, um, of people seeking meaning in society and in their lives and in creating things for posterity. That could be groups of people, it could be individuals, and it's something that will have emerged from, I think, from communication, possibly even wars but or, or treaties and things like that between different groups of people across southern Britain at least um, and one of the things that really distinguishes Stonehenge from any other um, stone circle of its kind or anything else near Europe or indeed any really any any monumental megalithic structure of this kind anywhere in the world and that is that most of the stones at the site are not local and they've come from huge distances now that was used to be one of the big questions about Stonehenge. If you look at the really early guidebooks in the 18th century and through most of the 19th century, it's a really common question. Where did the stones come from? And the answer to that was was, was varied. Um, people would say they came from Africa. They came from all over the British Isles, from Ireland, from France, from Norway. And gradually, that narrowed down. And by the beginning of the last century, people were looking at Wales But the the first official guidebook to Stonehenge, um, about 1915, um, left open the possibility that some of the stones came from France. So, So it was really only in the 1920s that we sort of narrowed it down to southwest Wales, to Pembrokeshire for the small stones. And then it was always assumed that the really big stones, which actually is what when most of us look at Stonehenge is what we think of as Stonehenge, these great tall things with the horizontal intervals over the top. That is always assumed that those come from somewhere closer, Salisbury Plain, or probably more likely the Marlborough Downs 20-30 miles to the north. So that question has been answered, but it with, there's new Science looking at these stones. The past decade, there's been an intensive project looking at the blue stones, these Welsh stones, and um, geologists and archaeologists are starting to identify. They think specific quarries where some of these stones came from, and that is is throwing up a lot of new ideas. And there's been a shift in um, emphasis from thinking that these stones were shipped to Stonehenge, literally in boats most of the way over uh, around the coast of Wales, and now thinking you know that maybe they were dragged. Um more safely, you know, less less dangerously, but overland. But anyway, but the point of this is that we've known for a long time these stones come from a long way, and now we're talking about very specific places across southern Wales. And that has to mean obviously that there's some kind of connection between people and places across that that um, distance between Stonehenge and Pembrokeshire. Um, And there's no reason to think that would have been unique. In other words, we might well expect to see similar connections across southern Britain in different directions. It's just that there's nothing physical on the ground or under the ground, you know, to tell us what those were. Um, And there have been scientific studies of animal bones and some human bones from Stonehenge in the area, which suggests that, some of these animals and some of these people grew up or, um, in different parts of Britain. It's even been suggested that some of them came from Scotland, which I think is pushing it a bit. Um, and the science is open to varied types of interpretation. But I think there every reason to think that people were coming over a wide area from at least southern Britain and quite possibly from the other side of the Channel. So from the beginning, it's a place that's reaching out beyond its immediate neighbourhood. It's embracing people, and I think that means politics as much as anything else.
2: So Stonehenge is also surrounded by so much mythology and folklore. What are some of the most interesting stories or fairy tales we have about its origins?
3: There's a famous story, and it is a fantastic story, that Stonehenge was built by Merlin and that he flew stones over from Ireland for the purpose. And, um, and it was built as a memorial to a large number of Anglo-Saxon lords who'd been slaughtered in a treacherous battle and um, and what's interesting about that is that there are elements in that story that we can see in Stonehenge today. And there's considerable debate about as to whether this is complete coincidence or whether there's actually something behind it. So, for example, the idea that the stones came from Ireland, I mean, they don't uh, or they didn't. Although there was a time when geologists thought they might have done. But the Blue Stones did come from Pembrokeshire, which is in the direction of Ireland from Stonehenge. You know, it's a, a long distance to the west. And the idea that there were lots of people buried at Stonehenge, well, that was proven to be the case in the 1920s excavation at Stonehenge that determined the site at one point in its history had been a very large cremation burial cemetery. And so there are a lot of people buried at Stonehenge in the Stone Age. And there are those two things, at least, you know, that come out of this Merlin myth that may possibly carry an element of memory, but from the distant Neolithic past. But I have to admit, I'm sceptical myself. I think, you know, that <laughs> um, there are stories about all sorts of megalithic sites and, and, um, and there are plenty of other stories about Stonehenge that, you know, that, that don't fit the archaeological narrative in any particular way. One of the things that's interesting is that we know at some point at least one Anglo-Saxon man was executed at Stonehenge. He was beheaded and buried um and the name stonehenge um we don't know exactly where it came from but one reasonable possibility is that hinge is hanging stone and people always interpreted that as being hanging referring to the lintels which are kind of hanging in the air you know hanging above the other stones but the classic stonehenge trilithon which is three stones two big uprights and a stone over the top it's actually the same shape as a, as a common Anglo-Saxon scaffold. And it's possible that Stonehenge literally um, is, the origin of that word, is an Anglo-Saxon view of the monument as a place where people were hung. Um, and as as we say, as I say, archaeology has shown that at least one individual was excavated, although he was beheaded or he could have been hung first. And But that... Execution, which you think now looking at Stonehenge and you imagine an execution out there, you think that might have been remembered in some kind of folklore, but it hasn't at all. There's absolutely no recollection of that. It's only the archaeology that tells us about that.
2: So you touched a little bit on how the large stones may have been moved to their final resting place at Stonehenge. Um, So these are the stones that people will generally think of when we think of the site, you know, the ones that you see if you look up images, for example. Um, So what are some of the theories about the origins of these rocks and how they were transported to their final resting point?
3: I mean, in the past, a lot of attention has been on boats and there have been experiments of sort of trying to raft small stones up the rivers near stonehenge i think we're tending now to think that the journeys were over land and that they would probably be using sledges and we've actually got evidence that this is at least one way in which big stones are moved and people um even today occasionally in a few islands in indonesia are moving really large stones um and, um, and there are records, there are ethnographic records of people doing this in other parts of the world as well, where they do move stones over land and they use sledges. Sometimes they'll put logs, rollers underneath those sledges, but sometimes the sledges will just be dragged over bare ground or logs will be pegged to the ground to, to, to form a kind of track, like almost a railroad and sledges pulled over that. And the key thing to get these stones moving is just sheer numbers of people, <laughs> a lot of rope and a lot of people. And we're thinking, you know, that this actually would fit the world we imagine to have created Stonehenge, where moving a stone to Stonehenge is not something we might think of purely as an engineering challenge, um, which is often the way it has been thought of. But it's it's a massive social and cultural political probably event um, and if an individual or a small group of people are organizing this thing then the more people can be roped in as it were to to move the stone um the more prestigious the more powerful the event becomes and the, the greater is the memory of that event and it may actually be the memory is as big a creation as the erection of the megalith and that memory is Enlarge by bringing in extra people and everybody often would actually want to be involved you know and even if it's just to touch the stone and not to physically take part in its moving but just to be there and I imagine huge crowds of people and probably you know not just burly old men with nothing on which is what you see in most of the reconstruction drawings but you know whole families um elderly people children um, coming out to see the, these things and just grabbing a bit of rope to say that they took part in it. And the journey is quite a long one for the blue stones, the small stones from Wales. So there would have been many overnight stops, which would mean people would have ne- needed to have been fed and watered, they needed somewhere to stay. And and providing those types of services would be an essential part of the transport of a stone and could have brought prestige or some kind of authority, the communities that were doing that, you know, it, it's, I think, you know, we need to see this as a massive operation within society and not just as a piece of technology. It's not like driving a truck down the M4.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: These stories are, are just endlessly fascinating. I find these stories about what, how people tried to understand Stonehenge in the past just as much as we do today.
1: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
2: Yeah, it's actually incredible visualising, you know, dozens, hundreds of people coming together to move these huge rocks across miles and miles and the effort that this must have taken. But moving on from the actual transportation of the stones themselves, we do understand a bit about how Stonehenge was built. So it was thought, for example, that it was constructed in three stages. Could you perhaps talk us through this?
3: Well, of course, archaeologists keep reinventing these stages. It's one of the (laughs) things that keeps Stonehenge archaeologists happy. Um, And um, we still don't really, I, I, I would say, we can't be certain what actually did happen. There's still a lot of gaps in our understanding of it. It's partly because most of the excavation occurred in the first half of the last century and was not always that high standard and the recording wasn't that good. Um, and partly because there are still large parts of the site that haven't yet been explored. We need to think of Stonehenge as a succession of monuments rather than just one, so in terms of the megaliths and other features as well. So the first megalithic structure is a big circle of um, 56 bluestones from Wales, and um, that goes up at around 3000 BC. And then the site is, is used for a, a few generations as a cremation cemetery, and other than that, we, we're not at all clear what else was happening there. But um, four or five centuries later, the really big Stonehenge that we think of Stonehenge is constructed in the middle of the site. And it's not as, not as um, vast as this original stone circle. And what happens is we, presumably they take down all the blue stones because they would have been in the way. Um, and these huge sarsens, 30 tonne stones are brought to the site. They're carved roughly, their shape. they're dressed into rough sort of brick shapes and their joints are carved onto them which is getting a bit more sophisticated they have joints on the top and they have the lintels the horizontal lintels have joints that connect them to each other horizontally and these things are then put in place and then the blue stone and then within that circle there's a circle of 30 of these big stones and inside that there are five groups of trilithons five groups of three stones in a kind of u-shape arranged within that circle And when all those really big stones are put in place, then they get the blue stones and they arrange those in in the middle. And then a few centuries later, those blue stones are taken out and they're rearranged and that may happen two or three times. Um, But they don't, the sarsens, these really big stones, they don't, I think for fairly obvious reasons, they don't move them again. But they start to fall down and we don't know why quite, you know, what causes that.
2: Um, Are there other mysteries to unearth the Stonehenge or other things that we perhaps can't explain?
3: Um, a lot of stones are missing and again we don't know where they went or when they were broken up but there are bits of stone all over the place uh, under the ground at Stonehenge and in the immediate area and at some time a lot of stones were smashed up. Now we know some of that happened in the 18th and 19th centuries and and indeed still occasionally happens today you know people visiting the site uh, bash bits off and in the 18th and 19th centuries it was really common people wanting to find out where, where these blue stones had come from. You know, they would collect their own sample, take it home, and if they had a friendly geologist, geologist they'd show it to them and put it on their mantelpiece and so on. that happened a lot. Um, but something happened in the distant past that we really don't understand. And it's one of the big mysteries about Stonehenge at the moment, and that is why are so many stones missing? Uh, when were they broken up and why and, and where did they go?
2: I think I've got the answer. I think it was Merlin who decided to take the stones back to Ireland.
3: <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. It's Merlin coming back and so saying you haven't been doing looking after this very well. I'll have it back. Yeah. So around 40 years ago,
2: you directed an excavation at Stonehenge. What was that like and what did you find?
3: Well, it was the most wonderful thing because I was I was a young archaeologist. I I can't remember, but I'd only been in, in my first job for a few weeks and had a phone call saying, and I was working in Wiltshire at the museum in Avebury, and I had a phone call late one afternoon saying something funny going on at Stonehenge, can you go and have a look? And it was because Prince Charles was visiting and there were all these official senior officials showing him around who'd spotted this machine digging up the ground just outside the monument. So I went to have a look and one thing led to another and I, I mounted a, a rescue excavation um, to clear the ground ahead of this machine while it waited. And it was laying a telephone cable. And, um, and I went back the following year when a water, (laughs) a farmer laid a water pipe trench. And this was literally on the verge of the road. The road itself is now gone. Um, that's the 344 that has recently been cleared away. But then it was quite a busy road and there was a narrow verge and we were literally excavating a narrow trench along this verge. And for good reasons i think a lot of archaeologists told me i was wasting my time um and you know didn't expect i would find anything but we found an extraordinary amount and i think the reason was partly because it was on the verge nobody else had, had interfered with the ground at all before <laughs> whereas most of stonehenge you know it's been dug over by so many people um and we found bits of various ditches and pits and things Um, and a lot of debris artefacts and things. But but the two really exciting things to me at the time, well, first of all, we found a huge pit um, that clearly once held a standing stone um, that none of us knew anything about. And it's very close. If you visit Stonehenge today, uh, although it's no longer by the road, which is great, there is still a huge megalith. In fact, it's the largest in terms of weight at Stonehenge. It weighs something like 40 tonnes, standing by itself, away from all the other stones called the heel stone and that is the stone over which the sun rises on midsummer day um, in years unlike this one when it rained but you know when the sun does rise (laughs) um, it rises over the heel stone it's on that it's it's marking that alignment and the pit we found was just a few yards from that stone and at the time I thought "Mm, maybe there were two stones there and actually the heel stone is just slightly off the alignment so if we put a stone in our pit then you had two, sort of like a gun sight, and the sun would have come out through the middle. And that's quite possible. An alternative explanation is that the pit actually held, was the original location for the heelstone and it was moved and so on, you know. but So there's this always happens. If you find something, you think, well, that's great. That answers that, but it opens up more questions and you can play around with it more. And the other thing we found was that was a bunch of stone debris. And I t- mentioned earlier how much a stone hinge is broken up. And there was a great pile of, of debris of all the different types of rock from Stonehenge that looked as if they'd come from not so much breaking up stones, but from dressing them, from shaping, carving megaliths. Um, and these stones had been used to as a floor for a hearth. So, although we had no other evidence for any kind of building, my intuition was that if you have a hearth in southern England. In the Neolithic, as much as today, you likely have a roof over it. <laughs> and so I suggested this might have been actually a kind of workman's hut, you know, for somebody who the group of a bunch of people actually building Stonehenge. And that's still a possibility. So that was quite something, you know, just on the verge of the road and for a very young, inexperienced archaeologist to find. <laughs>
2: Um, I suppose what I also wanted to ask, as we near the end of the podcast, was what what is it for you that makes Stonehenge um, a rem- such a remarkable stone circle compared to perhaps other stone circles?
3: Well, there's 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 the literal physical thing that that it is unique in that the stones it's made of have come from huge distances and most of them are to a greater or lesser extent carved and dressed and both of those things are unique not just in southern England but in Britain and in northwest Europe at the time Um, and everything associated with Stonehenge is unusual archaeologically and historically. So that's one reason why it's interesting. If you understand Stonehenge I think then there's something about our ancient history that you also understand. And if you don't, you don't. But the other thing I like about Stonehenge is because it's attracted people, um, people's curiosity for so long, and clearly beyond written history. You know, people were visiting Stonehenge in the Iron Age and the Bronze Age, and Romans were visiting Stonehenge and leaving their picnic rubbish there. Um, that it, it's a kind of mirror, it's like a basket for cultural change and memories and experiences and people write about it they draw it photograph it and it it kind of draws together all people from so many different walks of life who come to go to stonehenge and and experience their own thing and leave their own create their own memories and very often create their own records of it and i find those experiences and the things people create and the stories people make in their lives, I find absolutely fascinating.
2: Yeah, it taps back into what you were talking about earlier and about how it was possibly a huge community event to build Stonehenge, you know, to bring these stones together. And that's like continuing today with so many people uh, visiting Stonehenge. And even the fact that it won, it came second in our BBC History Magazine's Greatest Mysteries poll, Um, we've still got this huge community fascination with the place. Putting you on the spot slightly now, we're at the end of the podcast. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners about Stonehenge that we haven't covered yet or any interesting stories that you think people might like to hear?
3: We were talking about bluestones, these Welsh stones earlier. I thought there was a story that I came across recently, um, which I rather enjoyed. Um, The beginning of the last century, so not So long ago, um, a geologist was working in Wales and um, was asked by an artist where he thought the bluestones came from. And he sent him in the post a little bit of bluestone, probably that he'd shipped off himself from Stonehenge. And by complete coincidence, the geologist was working in the area that we now know was where most of these Welsh stones came from. So he recognised it. And he wrote back to this book guy and said, oh, I think it comes from this part of Pembrokeshire. So then the guy sat down he wrote his guidebook. And in about, well, about 1910, this guy wrote this story about how these stones came from Pembrokeshire. And there was a really handy harbour on the north coast. And that was where the Roman ships landed to pick up all the stones <laughs> and they organised the natives to pick the stones up for them. And then they sailed north around Scotland and picked a few stones up there as well because some other geologists had told him they came from Scotland and came all the way around Britain and up the Solent through Southampton <laughs> with these stones on a Roman ship. Um, and that was about a, you know about a century ago. So we've come on a bit from there, but... <laughs> These stories are, are just endlessly fascinating. I find these stories about what, how people tried to understand Stonehenge in the past just as much as we do today.
0: That was Mike Pitts. You can read the original nominations for all 20 mysteries on our website at historyextra.com forward slash greatest hyphen mystery. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when we'll be revealing which mystery came out top in the poll.